Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, February 24th, 2022. The Climate Report broadcasts and podcasts on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. Today's Climate Report follows up with the items we couldn't fit into our last episode special on EVs. Plus, we highlight all the latest news on gender studies and the climate, as well as practical tips and personal climate action info on food and home care. Last week, we highlighted current news, data, and updates on the transition from gas engines to electric vehicles, which is all very exciting, but comes with its own challenges, from overconsumption and shopping envy to ramping up the recycling of batteries, and how to pay for roads and other public services that have traditionally been funded by collecting taxes at commercial gas pumps that are being used less and less. Today we finish our EV special highlights by touching on that last issue of funding roads and services, as well as the concept of going car-free in major cities and EV bikes. Well, in the UK, they have some interesting proposals for what to do about gas taxes. Members of Parliament there say that the UK must introduce what's being called road pricing, as they see no viable alternative. A transportation committee for Parliament, which is their version of Congress, so to speak, concludes that a drop in fuel tax revenues from the shift to electric vehicles requires urgent action. This, according to The Guardian, says motorists will have to pay by the mile to to make up a 35 billion pound tax shortfall that will arise from the shift to electric vehicles, members of parliament have warned, calling on the government to act urgently to bring in a national road pricing scheme. Now, while this is taking place in the UK, it gives you a good window into what we might expect here in the United States as well as elsewhere around the world. The bipartisan cross-party Commons Transport Select Committee said that it saw, quote, no viable alternative to road pricing and that work should start immediately on creating a replacement for fuel taxes collected at a pump before it dwindled away with the transition. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, just last month said that the capital should move to a smart road pricing scheme, but conveniently claimed the technology was not ready to introduce before the end of his term in office. Recognizing the political difficulty, in its report, the UK Parliamentary Committee said that new charges should entirely replace fuel taxes and vehicle excise taxes and, quote, be revenue neutral, with most motorists paying the exact same or even less than they do now. The members of parliament said that the UK government should consider the impact on vulnerable groups and those in rural areas and ensure that any data captured be subject to rigorous governance and oversight to protect individual drivers' privacy. It should also incentivize people to continue to use public transportation, walk or cycle, the committee said, with driving set to become an ever cheaper option once an electric vehicle is bought. Drivers of electric vehicles should pay to maintain and use the roads, 
the members of parliament said, just like gas and diesel drivers currently do. Although they said that incentives to purchase cleaner vehicles must remain. In the end, the report calls on the Treasury and Department of Transportation in the United Kingdom to set up a group to draw up a scheme by the end of this year, 2022. They said that they believed the public would support a scheme despite previous opposition, with one member of parliament saying it's important to emphasize that motorists won't pay more. But the difference between now and then is that all of this revenue for roads, schools, and hospitals is ticking down to zero unless we put a 5% onto income tax. This issue can't be dodged, he said. We have to change policy. Merriman said that the technology now existed to deliver a national scheme that priced up a journey when you drive a car based on the road, the time, and the type of vehicle offering better prices at less congested times. Motoring think tank the RAC Foundation backed this call for road pricing, but warned against, quote, the temptation to create an over-complex system that's expensive to run, end quote, suggesting that charges could be calculated and collected alongside vehicle insurance premiums. So that that's when you paid for your roads was Monthly, when you paid your insurance, a report would track where you drove, when you drove, and what you drove. Steve Gooding, director of the RAC Foundation, said, Drivers choosing to go electric deserve to know what is coming next, particularly if the promise of cheap per-mile running costs is set to be undermined by a future tax change. If the Treasury is thinking it can leave this issue for another day, but still recoup their losses from electric vehicles in the future, they risk a furious backlash. The policy exchange think tank issued its own report, said road pricing could be good for drivers by easing congestion, and they said it should be implemented through location tracking technology in cars, backed up by automatic license plate recognition. Then there's another prospect of just reducing the need and the use for cars, period, at all. Berlin is actually considering a car-free area larger than the island of Manhattan in New York City. It's a citizen-driven plan that the city is considering, and it would create the largest car-free area anywhere in the world. It starts with 2019 at a bar in Berlin. Three friends were having a drink when they started considering a radical idea. What if the middle of their then car-centric city became essentially car-free? Over the next few months, they kept talking about the idea and eventually created a group, People's Decision for Auto-Free Berlin. The goal, they agreed, should be to limit cars within the space inside the Ringbahn, which is a huge circular train line in the city. This space is larger than Manhattan, and if the plans succeed, it would be the largest car-free area in any city in the world. Now working with pro bono lawyers, the group crafted a proposed new law spelling out what would change. As in other cities, car-free doesn't literally mean that no cars could enter the area, but private car use would dramatically drop. Special permits would be given to emergency vehicles 
garbage trucks, taxis, commercial and delivery vehicles, though many deliveries in Berlin already happen on cargo bikes, and residents with limited mobility who depend on cars. Others would be able to use a car, likely through a car-sharing program, up to 12 times a year to run longer errands, but most people most of the time would walk, bike, or take public transportation. Nina Noble, one of the founders of the campaign, told The Guardian it's as much about our immediate environment as it is about the environment at large. It's about how we all want to live, breathe, and play together. We want people to be able to sleep with their windows open and children to be able to play in the street again. And grandparents should be able to ride their bicycles safely and have plenty of benches to take a breather on. Last April, they started gathering signatures in support of this campaign, ultimately getting 50,000 people to sign. The Berlin Senate, which is that city's governing body, is now considering the idea. This month, the city will decide whether to adopt this new law. In 2016, the same process led the city to adopt a different law to improve cycling in Berlin. If this idea is rejected by the city now, the group will begin gathering signatures again. And if they can get 175,000 people in support, the proposal would then go on the ballot next year in 2023 and citizens will decide if it should become law. It's already much easier to avoid driving in Berlin than it is even in dense American cities. The trains, for example, automatically run every five minutes. Says Nick Kaysner, an American who moved to Berlin in 2020 from San Francisco and is now part of the Auto Free Group, he said, I don't even need to know when the next train is coming because I know it's going to be soon enough that I don't care. And that makes a huge difference. In San Francisco, the BART train runs as infrequently as every 30 minutes during some off-peak times. Already, some neighborhoods in Berlin are building what they call keys blocks, large areas where traffic is limited, and more are planned. But the campaign organizers argue that the reality of climate change means that streets should be redesigned even more quickly. Kastner says that people in Berlin are more likely to understand that the answer isn't just a shift to electric cars. He said, my biggest takeaway from Berlin and Europe in general over the United States is just that they have realized that this is not just a revolution toward electric vehicles, but toward the removal of vehicles in general, he says. Well, and while that could take time through politics and legislation, there is a simple solution for getting cars off the road right now. At first glance, electric bicycles and tax rebates don't appear to have much in common. They share two characteristics, both are kind of uncool, and both may be hugely important in getting gas guzzlers off the road in American cities. E-bikes may never be as eye-catching as their more stylish cousin, the scooter, but they are already becoming an affordable commuting option for millions of Americans, as well as recreational, as we see here in our area. And tax rebates, while not the flashiest government benefit, could help usher e-bikes fully into the mainstream. The key element here is cost. The federal rebate for battery electric and plug-in hybrid cars takes as much as $7,500 off the sticker price, which is a solid chunk of cash, 
until you realize that the cheapest new full-size EV costs around $40,000. But e-bikes, which provide a battery-powered boost to your pedaling or do all the work for you, depending on the class of e-bike, they generally range between $1,000 and $2,000. States are getting in on the e-bike rebate game. A California program that begins in July offers a $750 rebate. And Vermont shells out $300. In Washington, Governor Jay Inslee has proposed a $1,000 rebate for zero-emissions motorcycles and e-bikes. Bills that are currently in both the New York State Assembly and the New York State Senate offer as much as $1,100 in immediate cash back on an e-bike purchase. The vehicles are a great fit for cities and their immediate suburbs. A 20-mile-per-hour pedal assist bike can cover 10 miles of bike lane in about half an hour, a pretty breezy ride for anyone who's tried to drive during gridlock traffic hours. More bikes mean less auto traffic, which New York University Rudin Center for Transportation Associate Director Sarah Kaufman notes is a major factor for reducing local carbon emissions, which can cause local ozone to spike on the ground in the summer. Widespread e-bike adoption, she says, can reduce pollution on the streets because they reduce car traffic congestion. Cars stuck in traffic will end up spewing more carbon into the atmosphere. They're not a cure-all, of course. E-bikes demand road maintenance, can be dangerous, and are expensive to outfit for the disabled. But so are cars. There's only as much grocery storage as you can fit on your backpack and seat post rack to say nothing of room for kids, and winter weather is an impediment, but it's not like e-bikes need to supplant cars completely to have an effect. If they merely take a bite out of single-occupancy car excursions, which, according to the Department of Transportation, makes up 42% of all car rides, single-occupancy car excursions. If e-bikes just take a small bite out of that, it would be a big deal. In 2017, the Department of Energy found that almost 60% of one-way car trips were less than six miles, which is well within the window for an easy e-bike jaunt. And lastly, wrapping up our subject of climate and transportation and cars and electric vehicles and bicycles, the Sacramento City Council had a meeting earlier this month that focused on the climate and traffic and the plan to build out more bike superhighways for both transportation, recreation, and commuters into the busiest parts of Sacramento. Well, next, we'd like to shift on to some news headlines with practical implications on health, home, house, as well as some interesting gender studies. First, we're going to talk about Laundry Day and how that impacts the climate and plastic pollution, because plastic comes from oil, and plastic is what makes polyester. So a lot more clothes than ever are actually oil clothing. And as the oil companies are seeing that fossil fuels are being used less and less, they plan to triple the amount of oil that's turned into plastic. So one way 
to make a difference is paying attention to all of the latest studies and info on microfiber pollution. That's a big part of the plastic pollution and how it's coming from our clothing. So most of us already have polyester clothes and how best to take care of them and keep them out of the landfill is important because polyester is a plastic that won't biodegrade in a landfill. Now, to start with, virgin polyester is derived from fossil fuels. And currently, there are people attracted to the marketing behind recycled bottle and plastic bottle clothing. But it turns out recycled polyester is actually more accurately described as downcycled plastic because the process actually takes bottles out of a closed loop system that already works really well. Most PET plastic bottles that are used for clothing can be recycled up to 10 or 12 times very successfully. Turning them into clothes actually takes the bottles out of that system and degrades them so they can't actually ever be recycled again. And all of these environmental challenges are compounded during use. Polyester oil-based plastic clothing is smelly, sweaty, stain-prone, and it sheds these plastic microfibers when it's washed and worn. But because it's cheap, it's in more than half our clothes. And since it's very likely we all have something made from polyester in our wardrobes, here's some expert advice on how to minimize the impact of polyester and oil in our clothing. Starting with microfibers, which are tiny particles that break off of our clothes when we wash and wear them. They've been found in the air, in rivers, oceans, the soil, tap water. It's been found in our food, fish, vegetables, and now... It's being found in the placenta next to growing fetuses. To make matters worse, since synthetic materials don't break down in natural environments, microfiber pollution is accumulating. And according to Paul Servin, the applications development director at a company called Zeros Technology Group that works on capturing microfibers out of the laundry, One-third of all primary microplastic pollution comes from washing our clothes in the washing machine. Small changes to the way we do our laundry can help. According to a textile scientist from RMIT University, Rebecca Van Amber, she says you can significantly reduce microfiber shedding by making simple changes to your laundry habits. She suggests that using a liquid detergent versus a crystalline detergent creates less shedding. Lower water temperatures versus hotter temperatures also reduce microfiber plastic shedding. Having a front loader washing machine helps. And of course, instead of tumble drying your clothes when it's nice enough hanging them out to dry. Interestingly enough, washing garments in a full load of laundry can reduce shedding by up to five times. Scientists also recommend washing garments less often if they have been lightly worn, saying try and consider if the garments need washing or if they can be cleaned in other ways. Well, then next is getting a washing machine filter. Having it fitted with a microfiber filter is the most effective way currently to prevent microfibers from wash cycles entering the environment. The latest filter developed by Zeros can capture more than 90% of microfiber pollution. And pretty soon, governments are looking to make these filters a requirement on washing machines within a decade or so. Another way to prevent this pollution of the environment through plastics 
is by using what's called a guppy friend bag. You can place polyester or synthetic garments inside it during washing, and studies show that these bags reduce the amount of shedding and catch microfibers that do break off. Of course, how you dispose of them afterwards once they've been caught inside the bag is important. You don't just want to rinse them out, which defeats the whole purpose. They also say this new study that different fabrics shed at different rates that polyester sheds three times more than nylon, and fabrics made from mixed materials, part polyester, part cotton, appear to shed less than fabrics made from 100% polyester. The textile weave makes a difference as well. Fabrics that have a, a brushed fleece surface and are fluffy are visible evidence of more likely to shed, whereas yoga pants that are tight and smooth and stretchy are made of longer fibers, that don't have them protruding less susceptible to shedding. It's also recommended that in order to not continually buy more plastic and oil-based clothes and keep dumping them into the landfill to take care of them better, and since polyester is plastic, it has a complicated relationship with sweat and oil, which is to say it holds on to both and won't let them go. That's why polyester starts to smell and why stains on polyester can be impossible to wash out. Any stain needs to be treated as quickly as possible before it sets with soap or detergent or water. Um, Sweat stains also will hold on to odor. So uh, scientists also say that be aware of claims, marketing claims of polyester synthetics with antimicrobial and anti-odor capabilities. Science says they can control bacteria, but they can't control smell. Next, we're going to touch on some interesting new gender studies and climate. Because the difference in actions by gender has been a little studied. And before touching on this, it should be noted, of course, in today's less binary society, that these scientific research studies that are looking at behavior based on binary sexual or gender orientation, in some cases might be better reinterpreted as looking at masculine and feminine traits, Either way, what they do disclose is that behavior does mean a lot to our climate emissions. A couple of different studies have highlighted that men's climate emissions and habits with their lifestyle exceeds that of women. Both spend similar amounts of money, but men use cars much more, take care of themselves less better, and spend more money on vehicles, gas, alcohol, tobacco. Women tend to spend more on house, health, home, and food, feeling good, looking good, and their emissions are associated less with vehicles. They did find out that the top three forms of of lifestyle that create emissions are vacations, food, and transportation. But for men, it was vacations, transportation, and food. They found that cutting out uh, meat, swapping it for uh, plant-based foods, And making train-based vacations rather than using planes or cars could cut people's individual's emissions alone by 40%. Some of the researchers said they think it's important to take into account the difference between men and women in policymaking. And they did note that the spending is very, very stereotypical. Again, women spending more money on home decoration, health, and clothes. Men spending more money on fuel for cars, vehicles, eating out alcohol, and tobacco. Vacations account for about a third of emissions for both men and women. This study looked at single men and single women in Sweden. 
They didn't look at individuals living in families. They said changes to diet and vacations to reduce personal emissions were chosen because they do not require extra spending, such as buying an electric car. They said these are substantial changes, of course, but at least you don't need to get yourself another job or borrow money from the bank. So it's something within reach here and now. You just use the same money you have and buy something else. Another study in 2017 had found that the greatest impact individuals can have in fighting climate change is to have one fewer child, followed by not using a car and avoiding flying. But earlier studies had showed that men spent more on energy and ate more meat than women, both of which cause higher emissions. Scientists said, I'm surprised more studies have not been done about the gender differences and environmental impact. There are quite clear differences in behavior, and they're not likely to go away in the near future. Austria's climate minister said, the climate crisis is one of the key challenges of our time and affects men and women quite differently. For instance, the majority of people impacted by energy poverty are women. It is therefore crucial to take gender differences into the equation if we want to develop solutions and a transformation that works for everyone. The European Environmental Bureau published a report that said why the European Green Deal needs ecofeminism, saying that the European Green Deal policies are at best gender blind and at worst widen gender inequalities. Another recent study looked at just specifically the diets between men and women, finding that men's meat-heavy diets cause 40% more climate emissions than women. The same research, though, showed that 25% of our personal diet-related carbon emissions are from optional food and drinks, such as coffee, alcohol, and cake. Now, of course, science doesn't say that men absolutely have to eat more meat, and a lot of this is actually out of line with nutritional guidelines. These same studies also showed that vegetarian, flexitarian, and vegan diets are cheaper than our modern Western diets. So, not only is it better for our bodies and better for the environment, but it actually is cheaper to eat less meat and dairy or cut them out altogether. These uh, studies also showed that men's diets, in addition to having 40% more emissions than women's, it was largely due to eating meat and more drinks. It also showed that non-vegetarian diets created almost 60% more emissions than vegetarian so the research did not assess why men ate more meat, but they did coincide with all the other research that says when you begin separating out behaviors and actions and lifestyles by gender, they do see a difference. When it comes to the costs of diets, it showed that vegetarian diets were 30% cheaper than a full-blown common modern Western society meat-heavy diet. And flexitarian, with low amounts of meat and dairy, reduced personal cost by 14%, but that a fish-based pescatarian diet increased personal costs by 2%. They, uh, the University of Oxford, which led this study on costs, said, we think the fact that flexitarian, vegetarian, and vegan diets can save you a lot of money is going to surprise people. When scientists like me advocate for healthy and environmentally friendly eating, it's often said that we're sitting in our ivory towers promoting something that is financially out of reach for most people. This study shows that it's quite the opposite. These diets could be better for your bank balance as well as your health and the health of the planet. Oddly enough, a recent survey found that more than 70% of people in Britain believe people should eat food that was better for the environment, but 65% said it was too expensive. Current average diets in rich nations 
don't even align with nutritional guidelines with meat eating much higher than recommended levels. Both the new studies confirm previous work that healthy diets are also lower emission diets. And we close briefly by the coalition of women's groups known as the Global Women's Assembly for Climate Justice who are saying women must be enabled to play a greater role as the needs of women and girls are being overlooked amid the global climate crisis. Women and children are often the worst affected by the climate crisis. They're primarily responsible in many countries for gathering fuel, water, and food, and they often suffer the most when shortages are caused or made worse by the climate crisis. They're usually lacking land rights and are therefore more likely to be displaced in climate disasters. Studies have also found that climate crisis exacerbates gender-based violence against women. Many of the remedies to the climate crisis would also benefit women, For instance, replacing cooking fires with solar stoves would reduce indoor air pollution that affects women and children more as they spend more time at home globally. Bringing clean, renewable energy to low-income countries would enable more women and girls to gain access to education, as without electricity, they often lack the means to study after nightfall. That's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, including heaps of good news and tips, there is the Climate Report social media page. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. 